Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 22. Matthew chapter 22. If you're using these black Bibles that are in the seats around you, we'll be on page 828. Matthew chapter 22, page 828. Before I read the text, I want to let you know that this will be the last time we will be reading and studying Matthew as a church for a few weeks. When you turn the page over or look just down at chapter 23, um, you're going to notice that there is a new section, a new chapter, and if, if any of you have those red letter Bibles, you'll notice that for chapter 23, 24, and 25, there's a lot of red letters, and it's because it's the fifth speaking section or speech section. The Gospel of Matthew is divided into stories about Jesus and speeches from Jesus. And so we're going to have a couple more stories about Jesus today, and then we're going to take a break because Matthew is 28 chapters. We've been studying it for almost, what, 70 sermons over the course of two years. And so we're taking our time through it because it's rich, it's good, it's Jesus, and our church loves Jesus. And hopefully you're not tired of Matthew but for the sake of knowing that this church is transient, we've got a lot of young people, people come and go, we don't want to get stuck in one book for too long, so every time there's a big division in the book, we take a little break, and then we do something else. In the past, it's been an Old Testament book series. Leviticus was a fun one. We did uh, an Old Testament series in some Psalms and Isaiah and other things like that in the past. This time, we are taking a break, and we are going to be studying prayer from the scriptures. So it's not just a topical, here's uh, let's, some fun points about prayer, but specific passages. So for example, next week, it will be Luke chapter 11, 1 through 13, when the disciples ask Jesus, teach us to pray. So therefore, a sermon next week will be learning how to pray from Jesus. And that will be from Luke 11. And we're going to do a series of messages on prayer. And I want to explain that part of the reason for this is because as we are now at our sixth year as a church, amen, woo uh, yesterday was our sixth anniversary for any of you that are new and don't know. So six years ago on February 15th, Embassy Church constituted on a Saturday night and it was a members meeting that we all had and there were 24 adults that said, yes, we believe this church should be about these things, these things being centrality of God's word at the center of our gatherings, centrality of God's word in the center of our lives, the importance of coming to the Bible and saying, God, we don't have an agenda. We want you to speak to us. We call that expositional preaching. It means we exposit the word to say, God, what's your agenda for us? Let's just work through books of the Bible. Church that cares about the nations and the lost and making disciples of all nations in every part of the world as Jesus commanded us. A church that cares about the gospel, that really thinks that Christianity in America has missed it in many different ways, but one of them being where Christianity and church is just about being good and not about seeing the one who is good, who makes us new through the message of the gospel. And on and on we could go. But here's what I'd like to say before we read the text. Because I'm in that like anniversary mode, and I've done this several times, this text, I'd like us to look at its main point in its context of what's happening here. 
But then I'd like to look at four half-truths, four things that I think will hinder our growth moving forward as a church. The reason we're doing this prayer series is because as elders, we've been thinking that we need to form, spiritually form our church in certain practices and disciplines that will help us grow in our faith in Jesus. And so therefore, instead of just going through another book of the Bible and and, and working through something in the Old Testament, we wanted to start thinking intentionally about certain areas that we want to grow in. And so call this, if you'd like, the state of the church in honor of the recent State of the Union that happens every time this time of the year. It's our anniversary. Here's the State of the Church address from Matthew 22 with certain key ideas of us thinking about our church moving forward. And I think what we might cover today will help us as we move into the next series and then weeks and months to come. So let's read the text. Matthew 22, 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. A second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Let me give you the big idea. And see how that big idea is taught within the context of this passage of Scripture and then our four half-truths that might hinder our growth. So the big idea is that the risen and ascended King, Jesus. Jesus is the risen and ascended King over all of creation. And He, in that position of authority, commands us on the earth, all humans everywhere, to repent of our self-love and love God and our neighbor with all that we are and with all that we have. That's my summary of what we have just read in God's Word. To make sure we're understanding within its context, let me just briefly go over what's happening in this text. First, you have a question from the Pharisees. But this is not just the first question. This is in a series of questions, and it all goes back to chapter 20. One, when you look at chapter 21, Jesus rides in on a donkey. He then turns over some tables in the temple, and it's at this moment that everything turns and starts leading to a cross where Jesus will die. This symbolic action of judgment when he turns over tables in the temple creates an uproar. This was a strategic, timely action of Jesus where he knew what would happen, and that's why he says in John's gospel, No one lays down 
No one takes my life from me. I lay down my life. Jesus died in part because of his actions and his sayings and the things that happened in the last two chapters, 21 and 22. And so if you've been following along in the Matthew series, if you start reading from chapter 21 to 22, you'll notice that when Jesus turns over these tables in the temple, he stays in the temple for the next day or so. And there's a conversation between him and the religious leaders. So it's in the temple they are having this. That's the context. And they're discussing issues about the temple. And I I think the best way to understand the context here is that you've got leaders that are wondering, who do you think you are to say that the temple is going to be destroyed in three days? And then you're going to raise it again three days later. Who, Who do you think you are? And what our story does is finish this little subsection. Our story shows that the last and final question comes. He's been questioned about afterlife last week with the Sadducees and what's going to happen life after death and resurrection. He's been questioned about politics and taxes. He's been questioned about who he thinks he is in terms of his authority, and he talks about John the Baptist and several different stories. Here he's being questioned about the Jewish laws. And then finally, after all these questions, do you see what Jesus does? He takes his turn. Okay, my turn. I've got a question for you. And in every time they ask a question, he has an answer for them, and they think they've got him in a trap. They're trying to trick him with all of these different questions. And it's Jesus who tricks them. It's Jesus who leaves them speechless. Notice the way our story ends. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? That's my question. And what do they say? Nothing. You don't hear a word from them until you hear the shouts of crucify him. That's how Matthew tells the story of Jesus. And the point that's being made here in Jesus' question is about the ascension or the ascending rule of the son of David who would be the king over the people of Israel. And this is why it's about Jesus as that risen and ascended Lord, the one whom said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, equal to God the Father is the one at the right hand. And he quotes Psalm 110 and then asks that question and dumbfounds them. So that's the basic context as we work through this text and look at four different half-truths that we need to make sure we get right for our church as we grow as believers and corporately as a church. Let's begin first with something we see in this question from the Pharisees. And notice that Jesus talks about love and the law. Here's the half-truth. The Old Testament is filled with rules, but the New Testament is filled with grace. Have you ever heard this, thought this, believed this, that the first two-thirds of the Bible is the Old Testament? Testament is the Latin word for covenant. It's the books of the Bible that are talking about the old covenant made with Abraham, and then Moses, and then David. The old covenant, oh, that's just a bunch of rules. That's all it is. If you wanted to become a, a believer in God and a part of his covenant people, then in order to become a covenant believer in God and have salvation, you must believe God and obey his rules. Obey the rules, you're a good person, you know? If you don't obey the rules, then you go to hell. That, that kind of thing. That was Old Testament. But then Jesus comes 
And when Jesus comes, it's no more about rule obeying. He just forgives you and accepts you as you are. There's grace. Okay, that whole thing that I just did for the last minute, I want you to realize I'm presenting it as a half-truth. There's things about it that are true. Oh, but it's so incomplete, almost so incomplete that it's a lie. The Old Testament is filled with rules, but that does not mean it is apart from grace. It is full of grace. And the rules in the Old Testament are the same rules as the New Testament, sort of. They're very, very similar, and that's what Jesus is saying here. He's being asked a question by a lawyer, which means he's a Pharisee who is an expert Bible scholar slash lawyer. It means that he spends his day thinking through what the Old Testament rules are and how they work in everyday life. That's why he's like the mixture of a pastor slash lawyer in this culture and community. And he, representing the rest of these other Sadducees, or, or Pharisees that is, he comes and speaks And in verse 36, he asked the question, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, this question has been asked many times by many rabbis. In fact, there's this famous story where it's like rabbis are supposed to stand on one foot and summarize the entire Old Testament on one foot before they put their other foot down. The point is, sum up what God's laws are. And each of them would have their turn trying to figure out the best way to summarize God's law. And Jesus' answer is not revolutionary. Jesus' answer is pretty common, and I don't think they feel like it's that crazy. It's, it's the right answer. He quotes, though, from Deuteronomy. It's a, a paraphrase of it to some degree. In verse 37, he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. This is the greatest commandment, you could say. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now look at this last line. This is where the half-truth gets clarified. On these two commandments, depend, or all of the law and prophets are hanging. Or if you want to use another image, all of the other laws are footnotes explaining this idea, love. All of the commandments are about love. The Old Testament was not a God that was angry and just gave a bunch of rules and was looking for you to perform, and then Jesus comes along and he's loving and he's full of grace. If this were true, Jesus would have said that all of the laws don't matter anymore. But that's not what he says. He says all the laws do matter. All the laws were and are about love. The reason why you and I struggle with these laws and thinking of them as so different from our day today is because of a confusion between what we would call statutory laws and common laws. The Bible is not full of statutory laws. And if you're wondering, what's a statutory law? Statutory law is the law is the words of the text. The list of statutes follow them to the letter of the law. Let me give you an example from the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 3. Women, do not braid your hair. Let your beauty be adorned with internal beauty, not external beauty. How many of you read that text and think, well, there it is. In the Bible, it says, women, don't braid your hair. If any of you braid your hair, repent. Take your braids out. Is that what the text is saying? Well, on the letter of the law, you would say, yeah, that's what it's saying. 
But that's to read the Bible as statutory law. The Bible should not be read mainly and primarily as statutory law, but as common law. Common law is about the application of certain principles. So when you understand the context of what Peter's talking about, he knows that women would oftentimes be destitute unless they got married. And especially, they'd want to be married to somebody who was rich or wealthy to provide for them. So therefore, what they would do is beautify their bodies externally to make them attractive to men so that they could seduce men into marrying them so that they could be secure. Anybody think that that kind of misses the point of marriage and love? That behind this command, don't be so worried about jewelry and braided hair and external appearance, but the internal heart, this will create for a greater society of love. That's 1 Peter 3, between statutory law, don't braid your hair, because that's what it says, versus what's the point? What's the spirit of the law? This is the exercise you need to do with every Old Testament commandment and realize that in one sense, all of the Old Testament commandments do not matter because you are not under the Old Covenant. Because that's not your law. But in another sense, all of them do matter because all of them are about love. And you can learn from each and every Old Testament commandment how to love people by learning about the context of the Old Testament commandments. So then think about the implication and application of this for your life. Jesus teaches us that the Old Testament law is not being put away with or pushed aside or abolished. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to bring it to where it was meant to go. It's pointing somewhere. This is what loving societies and relationships look like. Jesus is bringing us there with his teaching and his law and his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. God's commands are about love in the Old and New Testament. The Old Testament is not just filled with rules, and salvation is by rules. Salvation was by faith in the Old Testament. Salvation is by faith in the New Testament. Grace is in the Old Testament. Grace is in the New Testament. Our God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the Old Testament was filled with laws of love as their goal and their motivation is love. And therefore, you should understand that the Old Testament is simply an earlier part of the story, and that's why its laws are different. If you've not heard this before, let me illustrate it this way. Imagine I have a son. He's four years old. His name is John. He's growing up in my house, and he starts keeping track of all of the rules that I give him in the house. He writes them down, and he realizes that in the Howell house, there are 613 rules. The reason I gave that number, by the way, is if you add up all of the commandments in the Old Testament, there's 613. And what if he realized that of those, there were 10 rules that were repeated more often and foundational for all the under 613? You could call them the Howell family 10 commandments. And then you could say that maybe there was one rule that pretty much was our key value. Howells are loving people. And it summarized the whole family's rules. This is the Old Testament in a nutshell. This is what Jesus is saying. But now, I want you to imagine that John grows up, he gets married, he moves out of the house, and he has his own family. And he starts thinking about how he's going to live his life. Does he think, for example, that all of the rules when he was a little kid apply to him now as a married man in his new house? Say, for example, one of the rules when John turns 13 will be, no girls allowed when mom and dad are not home. Hopefully you understand why that might be a rule. 
So no girls allowed unless mom and dad are home. And so what if he were to say, sweetie, I know we got married, but I live under a rule. I have to stay in another house. We can't live together because no girls allowed unless my mom and dad are here. So maybe we can move in with my mom and dad. Or maybe we could just have them stay at our house. Or maybe we just live in two different houses. So when you hear the illustration that way, doesn't it make sense that John, at that season of his life, were under certain rules that would point him to love and to protect him and to care for him? And that as the story develops and as he matures and as different phases of his life go, the rules change. But the bottom core of them do not. It's still about love. This is good and it's right. And this is the spirit of the law. And Jesus says it is love. So I want to make sure that none of you think that the Bible is all one big rule book. Not true. There are rules in it. The Bible is one big storybook. And depending on where you're at in the story, then you should be able to read the rules in the appropriate manner. But here's the bottom line. All of the rules, they're love. Love God and love your neighbor. Second half-truth that we need to address. Jesus did not come to make me perfect just to forgive me. See, that's the half-truth. That's not the amen point. This is the famous bumper sticker, if you've ever heard it or seen it. Not perfect, just forgiven. Well, true. This is true. This is kind of true. But you know what that communicates, I think, for more people? Well, I'm a sinner, and I'm always going to be a sinner, and so therefore, I'm just a forgiven sinner. That's my only hope, and there's nothing I can do about it. So then that creates two kinds of people in the world. Sinners and forgiven sinners. And all of this I still think is partially true. The question is whether or not by these words you would mean that God does not actually want to change you in your sin. Well, excuse me, I'm a forgiven sinner. I just sin a lot. I don't need to really change my behaviors. I don't need to repent of my sin. I don't need to become a more loving person. I know he commands us to love God and love you, but he doesn't really want me to become a lover of God and my neighbor. Just a forgiven one, because I don't do it very well. That's not the gospel. That's not why Jesus came. Jesus came to make people love. To make you love God more, to love each other more. Like, and actually transform your lives to be more loving. He didn't command this to just say, well, here's the high bar. Love God with everything you got. Well, you'll never make it. Well, good thing I've got the cross to forgive you. The cross does forgive you, but that forgiveness also pours out God's very presence and spirit into your heart that you become a lover. You get changed. People don't get forgiven and then feel the love of Jesus from that forgiveness and then act as if, well, good thing I got that forgiveness taken down. I've got that taken care of. So here's the bottom line question. If you're going to use, I'm not made to be perfect. Jesus didn't come to make us perfect. He just came to forgive me. Do you actually believe then that you can change? Or do you just think all that you need is some forgiveness? I think it's a half-truth to just think that all you need is forgiveness. You do need forgiveness. And praise be to God, Jesus has granted and offered that forgiveness, and it is free. 
But the good news is that the very command he's asking and saying here about loving God and loving neighbor can actually become true through the power of that forgiveness. Do you believe then that Jesus died? He rose again from the dead. He conquered your greatest enemies, sin, Satan, and death, ascended to the very control room of the universe, the throne room of God, and rules all of heaven and earth in that place by sending his spirit into your heart and life and into the world so that you can not only be forgiven of your sins but be transformed by them and then be perfected. Right now? I'm perfect right now through the Holy Spirit? No! But one day, you will. He who began a good work in you through his spirit, he's going to perfect it or complete it. This is the teaching of the Bible. The word perfection can sometimes be very misguided and misunderstood. The Greek word is telos. It means that something comes to its goal or end or to fill up to the full of a cup. It means to have its end goal realized. You will be mature, reach the finish line. That's what perfected means. This is why Jesus even commands in the Sermon on the Mount, you therefore must be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. I must be fully mature, fully complete human being like the Heavenly Father. That's a high bar. I'm going to need forgiveness and grace because I'm not that. That's one part of the story. Another part of the story is that increasingly, day by day, right now, you become more like the Heavenly Father and bear His image with increasing love for God and for neighbor. And that increasingly happens and never gets perfected in this life because of the world that we live in that's so broken and the sin that's in us. But one day, when Jesus returns and establishes the resurrection from the dead, you will have a mature, complete, perfected body and soul and life. He came to perfect you. He did, to mature you. Don't stop the gospel half short in what God's going to do in you. It's not just to get something started, and increasingly in small amounts right now. He's doing that as evidence of what he's going to do in the future. So do you believe it? Do you believe that you will be perfected and matured? This, my friends, is at such a core important thought process that you need to grant God, God needs to grant you the faith to believe. Change happens. It really can happen, and it does. And I'm so excited that today we have a baptism because we get to hear a fresh reminder of that change, that people are not the same, and that the gospel transforms lives. Third, God has more important things to care about. He's too busy in heaven. He does not care about, and then you fill in the blank. What is that thing that you would put in that blank? God's too busy. He doesn't care about what I do with my money. He doesn't care about my marriage. He doesn't care about how I drive my car. He doesn't care about what I eat or drink. He doesn't care about how I spend my time on the internet. He does not care about whether I do this job or that job. He just, he's too busy. He just cares about a few big things. He doesn't care about the little details of my life. This one I don't think is a half-truth. This one I think is just straight-up lie. (laughs) Jesus says that we should love God with all of our what? 
our heart, with all of our our mind, all of our, our soul. He's quoting from the Shema, the most repeated Old Testament passage in the life of a Jewish person. Every day, these are the words you pray if you're a Jewish person. And Jesus is a what kind of person? A Jewish person. So do you think Jesus maybe prayed these words a few times? Hear them. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, that's the word in Hebrew, Shema. So that's why it's called Shema. It's the first word is hear, listen, and obey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. I don't know how you read that and not think that the God of the Bible cares about every little thing you do, everywhere you go, all facets of your life. Our love for him should be all-consuming, all of us, with everything that we are and everything that we have. We should give ourselves to God, which means then that there's no neutral area of your life. There's not some area of your life that's like, well, God doesn't care about that. As if it's like, well, God cares when I go to church and when I read my Bible and when I pray, then he's paying attention, and then he's kind of like tuned out, and then, well, then he cares when I do bad stuff. He's like, oh, that's not good. And he kind of wakes up then. That's not what God's like. He is the all-knowing, all-present, ever-sufficient God to know everything about all of you. And therefore, all of your life is included in the command to love God and neighbor. God cares about everything. He knows everything. There is no big divide between the secular and the sacred or the stuff that we do in the world, like your job, if you're not working for a church, well, just, you don't matter. (laughs) Your job is not important. But church work, what I do, really important. You should give lots of money to this church. You should pray for me because what I do is important. What you do, not important. You just support me. Some people think that. I don't think that. I don't think that only my job is the work of the kingdom. I think many of you who are moms and teachers and working at a desk job and doing work in finance and doing things out in the world, all of those things are done in a way that bear God's image, represent Jesus, and can contribute to the world in a way that Jesus meant you to do. Just think, for all of eternity, you're not going to need Pastor Phil anymore. So what are you going to do? A job. Maybe even the very job you're doing now because that's what you were made for. I want you to realize the importance of your everyday lives, callings, vocations, it's called. The things you do every day with your habits, the little quirks that make you you. I want you to realize that all of these are a part of your expressing your love toward God and neighbor. And I want you to realize too that what you do every day, little things like what you ate for breakfast, what time you went to bed, when you got up in the morning, what did you do the first thing you woke up? Was it check your phone? What was the first thing you did when you went to bed? Or the last thing? Psychologists, scientists say that these are one, some of the most shaping minutes of our day. Last things you do before you go to bed, first thing you do when you wake up. Because the things we do 
aren't just things we do. They do something to us. I want you to let that really sink in. The things that you do, they do something to you. And they're going to shape your loves, your desires, your heart. And God wants all of your heart to be shaped by love. I want Embassy Church to be a holistic church that views human beings and our work in the world and in the community to be all centered around love that includes shaping our mind, our heart, our soul, our physical body. Let, it, let, let us be done with secular sacred divides and here, here's a brief little caveat. This is obviously something that I, I have like a, a deep concern for and if you've heard it too often, I apologize. But one of the worst things I think about our understanding of what it means to be Christian is that many of us think that I have a physical body that matters very little, but inside me is my soul, my true inner being. And when I die, my soul leaves my body, and that is what it means to go to heaven. I, I don't think that this is too strong, but I want you to realize that that is the very thing that the early Christians, right after Jesus, were fighting against. So if I were to put it this way, that is like the first heresy of false teaching that early Christians fought against. That the physical material world is kind of lesser. That the inner spirit soul is what really matters that then lifts off into heaven in a non-material body. That's called Gnosticism, and it's terrible. Jesus became a human as a physical person which blows Gnosticism out of the water, dies on a cross, rises again from the dead, and then the very opposite of the Gnostic belief. The Gnostics believed that Jesus rose again and then lifted up into the heavens as a spirit. But what are we talking about today? Jesus is the Lord from Psalm 110 who sits at the right hand of the Father. In what form is Jesus right now? Well, if you ever celebrate Easter, it's physical body. He is risen. He is alive. He is a human body right now in heaven. This is the exact opposite of Gnosticism, and it was the very thing that the early Christians would use to defeat these horrific teachings. Think about the implications that you might have if you over-spiritualize your inner kind of being, the, the non-visible parts. And you, you stop realizing the importance of the body part, the physical body. I cannot tell you how many times I have had to tell people that your main reason for your depression is because of your lack of sleep and your bad diet or lack of exercise. Well, Pastor Phil, you're supposed to give me spiritual advice. I'm giving you just basic loving advice. But how is that not spiritual? Do you think that you are some sort of God or that you need sleep. Humble yourself before the mighty God who does not sleep. You're not God. Do you think you can just eat and do whatever you want with your body and figure like, oh, it doesn't matter. I can, it's all just gonna get burned up anyway. No, no, this is a temple of God and it's to dwell the very presence of God in us. All of it matters. So let us have a holistic view that sees Jesus' words here to love God with all of our mind, all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength as a view of everything matters. All of life, 
every detail of every day. There is no little neutral area that God is just like, fine, just do what you want. Doesn't matter. One way or another, anything and everything leads to us loving God and loving our neighbor. Jesus says that the very Father that we pray to knows every hair on your head. Does that sound like a God who's indifferent about certain matters of your life? When he counts every hair on your head, knows you that intimately and personally? You will know your love for God is growing as you start seeing it lived out in your everyday life. That's why Jesus answers the question by not giving one but two commandments. Don't you love that move? What's the greatest commandment? Oh, I'll give you one and then a second that's like it because you can't have one without the other. The everyday life of living it out in your home and in your workplace and with your next door neighbor and with your coworkers and family and church, this is how your love for God is put on display. So, is this the God you worship? The God who knows all things and doesn't let a single detail pass by? The eternal God who has all the time in the world. Do not project on God busyness. He's got a lot to, to manage. He's eternal. He's not like, oh, I got a little bit of time to figure this one out. He stands outside and beyond time itself. He is all-knowing, eternal, and a loving God who cares about all of your intimate details and needs. Or as 1 Peter 5 says, cast all your cares upon him because you know he cares for you. The basis for why you can come to God and pray on a regular basis is because you know he cares. Well, should I pray for this? That's kind of little. Yeah, you should. He cares. Cast all of your cares upon him because you know that the God of the Bible cares about you. Fourth and finally, the gospel is that God became man, died on a cross, and rose again. It's true. This is very, very good news. All of that is true. It's just not the whole story. The gospel story does not end with the resurrection. It ends with enthronement. It ends with an ascended king sitting at the right hand of the Father, with all of his enemies placed under his feet, like the ones spoken about in Psalm 110, with the Father and the Son sending the Holy Spirit. And then, as the church is built and growing and the gates of hell will not stand, the gospel advances around all the world, reaching all peoples, tribes, tongues, and languages, because the power of God is the gospel. The power of God for salvation is the good news that Jesus Christ reigns now as king, and therefore his ambassadors should go around declaring the good news that everyone everywhere should repent of their sins, put their trust and hope in him, because one day this king will come to judge the living and the dead. For the last minute or two, everything that I just shared is in addition to the resurrection, in addition to Jesus' coming, incarnation, dying, and then rising. All really important first half of what's going on in the gospel story. But by reading this text, Jesus' self-understanding is that he is not just a man 
who came and unfortunately got killed, and oh, God's just going to decide to use that death as a means to forgive sins. And God rose again from the dead. But then, if Jesus is alive and he rose again from the dead with this new resurrected eternal body, where is he now? He's where he told his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going back to be with my Father. And I will go, and this will be to your advantage because I will send a helper, a counselor, a comforter, the Holy Spirit, so that the Father and my presence will be with you and in you. In John chapter 16, he's going to say that the Father and the Son are going to dwell and make up their house in your heart. How beautiful is that? That's good news. And just stopping at the resurrection is not preaching the full gospel that Jesus himself understands to be coming and accomplishing. He wants to accomplish that the Lord, who is God Almighty, says to David's Lord, sit at my right hand. Now who? Who could be somebody that sits at the right hand of God the Father? And that's the whole point of his question. Who's David talking about there? And these guys are like, that's, I don't know. Who is that? And Jesus is saying, you're looking at him. It's me, the second person of the Holy Trinity. If you ever wondered, is the Trinity in the Old Testament? Uh-huh. The Lord is speaking about the Lord sitting at his right hand. Two different figures with equal authority, equal worth, value, both God but two different persons. So friends, do you realize that the gospel includes Jesus' coming and his going, his living, dying, rising, but now reigning, ruling, judging. The absence of Jesus and the presence of the Holy Spirit is vital for your understanding of how to grow. If we're going to start learning about how to pray, you must know as a foundation that the gospel includes the gift of the Spirit to convict of sin, to guide you to truth, to help inspire and sanctify you in all of the ways we've been talking about today, namely love of God and love of neighbor. And none of that would be possible if Jesus is still on the earth right now. Let that sink in for a minute. You would not love God or your neighbor if Jesus were still in his resurrected body on the earth. Only by him going to the control room of heaven, the throne room of God, and pouring out the Spirit, do we now have good news to declare and share that you can, in fact, repent of your sin. You can turn to become a person of love. So I hope that this is not lost on you, that your understanding of the gospel should include all of it, not just part of it, All of it's good. Each of them could be paused and meditated on. So for today's sake, let's pause and close meditating on the significance of Jesus' departure. Jesus left this world as a human. Right now, in some sort of space-time-matter universe existence, Jesus is not here, but he's there. If that makes your mind hurt, Welcome to my world. But there he is, ascended in full bodily form. Does that mean that the world is materially 
trash. We should not care about it. All that really matters is the spirit form. No. Heaven came down to earth, and earth came up into heaven. They should be reunited. And the gospel of Jesus' ascension reunites heaven and earth again in a way that it's never been since the garden. That's good news. But that's not all. Earth left and went to heaven. A part of earth. Jesus is a part of earth. He has a human body. Earth went to heaven. Earth went where? To heaven. Because this earth is not our home. Realize the the mixture, the paradox of both the material world is good, the created world is good, but don't love it too much. Because this earth, as you live in it, it's not your home. By looking at Jesus, having your eyes set on things above, Colossians 3, verse 1. Namely, he says, the son seated at the father's right hand. By having your eyes set on things above, not earthly things, this will be a massive fuel to your fire of growth as a Christian. You will understand the paradox of being in the world but not of the world. You will understand the difference between saying, I love the material world and want to redeem and restore it with all that I am, with my love in my heart, and you will know not to love it too much. Believers in Christ have citizenship in heaven. We are sojourners and we are exiles. So when we understand Jesus' departure, it reminds us that our coming future hope is of a new world. And as one author writes, the recovery of Jesus' ascension to heaven in the church will give a helpful corrective to one of our biggest problems in America. Namely, our over-identification with the present world. We too often are virtually indistinguishable between the church and the culture of America. And this, my friends, is crippling our witness. So therefore, I would encourage us to embrace all of these as helpful correctives to the full truth of the gospel. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we want to give you thanks now for the gospel of Jesus Christ, for all that he has come to do, for all that he has already done. We want to thank you that right now we can have confidence that there's a part of us, a part of our humanity that is in heaven. And so we're so encouraged by this God. We're so thankful for it. We want to thank you for the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, how it transforms lives, and that each one of us who are believers in Jesus are reminded of that every time we remember our own story of salvation. So we thank you specifically tonight, today for Emily. We thank you for her story, and we pray, God, that all of us will be encouraged as we're reminded of the power of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.